I want you to get your worksheet and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to look tonight at the husband's priorities in the divine design of a family. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25 through verses uh, 33. Several years ago, the Saturday Evening Post published an article entitled, The Seven Ages of the Married Cold, and it revealed the reaction of a husband to his wife, to his wife's cold, you know, the common cold, first seven years of marriage. It was something like this. First year, sugar dumpling, I'm really worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle, and there's no telling about these things with all this strep throat going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'm bringing your meals in from Rossini's. I've already got it all arranged with the floor superintendent. Second year. Listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. I called Doc Miller and asked him to rush over here. Now you go to bed and be a good girl, please, just for Papa. <laughs> Third year. Maybe you better lie down, honey. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> Maybe you better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. <laughs> Somebody may have to come and finish this. This is hilarious. <laughs> Nothing like a little rest when you feel lousy. I'll bring you something to eat. Have you got any canned soup? <laughs> the fourth year. Now look, dear, be sensible. After you fed the kids, washed the dishes, and finished the floor, you better lie down. <laughs> Fifth year, why don't you take a couple of aspirin? <laughs> the sixth year, I wish you'd just gargle or something. <laughs> Instead of sitting around all evening barking like a seal. <laughs> Seventh year. I didn't know I was going to crack up. <laughs> For Pete's sake, <laughs> stop sneezing. <laughs> For Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> does that sound familiar? <laughs> I don't know where we, I think I lost it. I don't know where we go from here. Seven ages of the common coal. And I guess in a funny way it describes something that's not so funny. And that is the, the decline in the uh, sacred and sanctity of the marriage. Many times I've heard people uh, teach this passage from Ephesians chapter 5 that the wives are to submit and the husbands are to rule. And the passage is not saying that at all. That's 
that's the effect or the essence of the curse. That the man is to rule and the wife is to be submissive. And it doesn't teach that at all. In fact, the Bible teaches that the woman is to, to be submitting, but the husband is to be loving. And we cannot forget the mutuality that is present here. And what the Bible is trying to do, I think, is to get us to get back to the beginning before the curse, to where man and woman uh, ruled in co-regency, and there was mutuality of authority and submission. So great was the mutuality of submission that authority and position was not even noticed. And the Bible is in this effort, I think, to return us to the, to the paradise that existed before the curse and before the fall. And we've come to the place, husbands, love your wives as an act of submission. Let me read this passage. Husband, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now if you're following the outline, we want to begin at the manner of love. And what the text is talking about is the factors that are involved in the kind of love Christ manifested. And obviously it is not possible for us to match the love of Christ in either quality or quantity, but we can love in kind. It would not be possible for us to possess the ocean, but it can be possible for us to have a little of it in our bucket. And so what he was talking about here is to possess in kind the manner of love that Christ manifested toward the church. It has about three or four characteristics. First of all, it is sacrificial love, verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He is the example. He loved the church and he gave up his prerogative as an equal with God for her. He gave up that prerogative. He surrendered that. He is the example. That, this is the essence, sacrificial love. Sacrificial love has nothing to do 
with whether it's deserved or not. When he came and died, it wasn't, there wasn't a soul on earth who deserved it. An inferior love gives only to those who earn the right to receive it. So that we love and the world loves with a kind of an object orientation. That is, if the object is desirable, if the object is worthy, if the object is attractive. And so what we say is this, I love you if you meet my expectations. I will not love you if you don't. God so loved the world and there was nothing in the world that was attractive. In fact, there was nothing any more unattractive than the world He loved. Sacrificial love does not wait until that love, until the object is worthy of that love. It's exhortation. He said to the man, to the husband, love your wife. It's not whether she's worth dying for or not. It isn't an issue of attraction. It is an issue of a binding commandment from God. He said, love your wife. And I believe that you will love, you will become greatly attracted, rather, to what you choose to love. You will become greatly attracted to what you choose to love. Sacrificial love goes to the furthest extremity as exemplified in Christ. It says you don't deserve anything that I have, but I'll die for you. You don't deserve my best, but I'll give up my life for you. Husbands, I believe this, that you and I will never know how to love until you've sacrificed self, until you've died to self, until you've crucified self. For Paul says, love seeketh not its own. So as long as you're looking for what you can get out of marriage, you'll never know what it means to love as Christ loved the church. Ask yourself, as I ask me, myself, when was the last time you really made a sacrifice for your wife? When was the last time you sacrificed yourself for your wife? When was the last time that you actually came close to being willing to die for her? So that it is a sacrificial love. Secondly, it is a purifying love. Now Christ loved the church and because He loved the church He wanted to cleanse it and to purify it. And He established a basic principle of truth. And I want you to get this, especially do I want these guys and gals on the front row to get this. That when you love someone, His purity or her purity is your goal. I need to say that again. When you love someone, the object loved, his purity or his or her purity is your goal. No one loves something or someone and wants to defile it. So if somebody tells you that he loves you or she loves you, and that person is not, does not have your purity as their goal, he doesn't love you or she doesn't love you. Now there are, several, there are two kinds of cleansing. There is positional cleansing. 
Paul says that Christ has forgiven you of all your transgressions, your trespasses. The scripture says he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. The act of justification is this, that God takes our sin and places it on Jesus, and he takes his righteousness and places it on us, so that positionally we are righteous. There is positional cleansing. He takes away our sins. He puts it, the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. That's positional cleansing. But there must be daily cleansing. Now there's a perfect illustration of that in a parallel passage, and I want you to turn to that. It's the 13th chapter of the book of John. It's John chapter 13, and I want to... let you read with me, beginning verse 8. Please turn to that passage. You'll need that there before you. You recognize this? Jesus is moving toward Simon Peter to wash his feet. And, and he said to him, and Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now this is what he means by that. If I, do not ha- if I do not wash your feet spiritually, you'll have no fellowship with me. It's necessary for me to wash your feet for you to have fellowship with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, my, my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He said, in case like that, give me a bath. And Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, And then as he looks at the rest of the disciples there, he says, but not all of you, not all of this group has been cleansed like that. Now when he's talking about bathing one, he's talking about the positional cleansing that comes when one has experienced new birth. That's in our terminology. But when he's talking about washing the feet, he's talking about the daily cleansing of the dust of the day, the dust of the world, the dust of of the daily walk. So that he's saying this in essence, you don't need but one bath. That is, you don't need but one positional cleansing. And that comes in the act of salvation. But you need to get your feet washed daily to cleanse them from the dust of the world. There must be this daily cleansing. Now, using this analogy and the purification or the sanctification in this text, The husband is the purification of the wife. Now watch this. Marrying somebody or marrying someone purifies her by taking her out of the world and apart from the past. Whatever the relationship she's had in the past, whatever the indulgences that she might have experienced in the past, marriage sets her apart And marrying someone is the purification of that one from the past. But there must be daily purification. So the husband is responsible and has the duty that he must seek that which cleanses her daily from the dust of the world. That means that he does everything in his power to maintain her holiness and her virtue. 
and her righteousness and her purity. He does everything in her power to maintain that purity. The husband will never put her in a compromising position where she could become angered, for that is a sin. Now listen to this. He'll never induce an argument, for that is a sin. He will never expose her to anything that will bring jeopardy to the purity and the virtue of her life. He will not allow her, he will not place her in a position to where she will lose that purity. Now look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The washing of the water by the word means that the husband has the responsibility in the home to apply to his wife and to his family, and we're going to be looking at that later, to his wife, ever-purifying influence that will make her holy. So that's why the husband is the spiritual head of the home. And that's why it is his responsibility to daily take the Word of God and read it and apply it and, and discuss it with his family, with his wife, because that word is the, is the agent of that cleansing that is that, for which he has responsibility. It's a purifying love. Third, it is a caring love. Verses 28 through 30. So husband also, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies... He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now we'd spend time on our bodies. Love is not an emotion. When your body has needs, you meet them. You don't you don't wait till you feel like it. You don't wait till the emotion is there. When your body has needs, you meet them. Your wife has needs, you meet them. It's not whether you feel like it or not. It's not whether you feel warm love at that point in time or not. It is a matter of, of meeting the need there, just like a person meets the needs of his own body. Don't forget that man is the provider and the protector and the pre preserver and, and he's the one who grants the resource for the woman's needs. Now look at two things that he uses, two words he uses. He uses the word nourisheth. The word is in the Greek extrapo. It means to nourish or to feed. And it's really the picture of a, of a, of a person uh, feeding a child. But it's used in connection with a man caring for his wife, nourishing her, bringing her to maturity, uh, providing her need, feeding her. I wish you could, I want us to capture that picture, that idea, the husband nurturing, nourishing his wife. One morning I went up to the uh, a single, the, uh, uh, single adult room up here just to do a little praying and studying. I was sitting on one of those couches in there and I looked out the windows last summer and there are two scissor tails sitting out on that highline wire that runs out there on the street. One was a male, long tail, one was a female. They were sitting on the top wire there. 
And I got, to, I, got I was intrigued by that, that scene there. Husband and wife, scissor tails. And this male scissor tail left, flew off, and she st- stayed there on this wire. He came back in about a minute or two, and he had something in his mouth. I don't know whether it was an insect or whatever. And uh, he, 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 he lighted on top of that wire there, right by his wife, Mrs. Scissortail. And he, he, uh, he leaned over, and, and he, he put that insect or whatever it was in her mouth. And she ate it, and he wiped his beak off on that wire. And when she swallowed that insect or worm or whatever it was, so did she. They sat there a while, and she, I guess she was telling him that she appreciated it, but she was still hungry. So he left. And I was watching, he came back, about five minutes he came back and had something else in his mouth. He sat down there by his wife and he leaned over and he put that in her mouth. He wiped his beak off on the wire and she swallowed it. She said, I'm almost full, but I'm, you know, I like dessert. So he, he flew off third time. He was gone about three or four minutes, came back, had something in his mouth. Leaned over there, gave it to her. They both flew off. Now, I don't know how far to stretch this, but it seems to me that that's the picture in this text. That here is this man, you know, who has this wife, that he has, he has committed his life to care for her needs. And he's just nourishing her. And he's not only, um, you know, out there battling it out to get that, you know, that she needs, but he's careful to see that, he presents it to her. And there is this tenderness and love that's involved in that. Now watch carefully. It is a caring love. And that caring love is a love that nourishes the wife. There is a second word he uses. It's the word cherish. And that Greek word means to literally to soften or to warm with body heat. To soften or to warm with body heat. And it's used to describe a bird sitting on the nest, warming, you know, the eggs. I love it. Cherishing, providing warmth so that the husband is to literally, is literally to provide a secure, warm, safe place for his wife. There's warmth there. And there is a a word that we don't like to, you know, use associated with us as men, and that is gentleness, warmth, security. And the basic need of the female, the basic need of the woman is for security, a nest where there is someone to provide warmth and love and gentleness and tenderness, cherishes her. Caring love nourisheth and cherisheth. Now look at verse 30. I want to read it again. Because we are members of His body. Now why does Christ care for us the way He does? Why does He meet every need we have? Because we're members of His body. We're a part of His flesh and His bone. 
spiritually. We're part of Him. And that's what happens in that mystic experience of marriage. We become one flesh, He says. And, we're to, and, 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 and nourishing and caring for one another like that is the common experience or the common reaction of one with his own body. See. So it's a caring love. Fourth, it's an unbreakable love. An unbreakable love. For this cause. Underline that phrase. Why is marriage unbreakable? For this cause. What is this cause he's talking about? Well, you could be lost after you've been saved. He'd have to cut off a part of his body. He'd have to become less than what he is. There would have to be this dissection somewhere. If you were part of his body, he'd have to cut part of that body off for you to be lost. And when we become one in marriage for this cause, because we are of one body, we can't, it's unbreakable, it cannot be separated. For this cause, a man shall leave. That word's a strong word. It doesn't mean forsake. It doesn't mean abandon. It means leave completely. That means this. That from now on, the devotion of a man is to his wife and not his mother and dad. So that when there comes the conflict, if there ever comes the conflict between the mother and, uh, and or the father and the man's wife or the woman's husband, she stays with her husband. She leaves her father and mother. He leaves his father and mother. And they put this space between them. They put this distance between them and they are joined together. I love that word. It means to glue together. If you've ever seen that commercial on super glue, you know, put those two blocks of wood together and they're stuck forever. Yeah, kind of nobody can prize them apart. It means to glue together. We are joined. Now just to mention quickly the motive of love. Verses 32-33. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now what is the motive of this kind of love? Why is it so important to love like this? Why is that so important? Well, it's important because marriage is a picture of the church. Strange enough, strange but true. That marriage is a picture of the relationship that Christ has with the church. Now, the church doesn't have too many symbols. We have a symbol for His death, burial, and resurrection. It's called baptism. We have a symbol of His death and His return. It's called the Lord's Supper. His body and blood given. 
and the, and the promise that He's going to return and ultimately complete His work of redemption. And you may not have thought of it in this sense and, and, and may not have really registered on this wise, but marriage is a symbol of Christ and the church. It's a picture of what happened when Jesus came and gave Himself for the church. Gave Himself up for her. So that when your marriage is a marriage that God has planned, when, when it's a part, when it's the, uh, according to the divine design, it illustrates and it symbolizes Christ and His church. It's important because of that. And secondly, because marriage is sacred. It was invented by the Lord Himself. It was prepared by God Himself. And whatever He has created and whatever He has prepared is sacred and is holy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can love like you want us to love. We can care for someone else like you cared for us. That we can will and choose to give ourselves up even when that sacrifice is not deserved. And in so doing, reflect to an unbelieving world the kind of love you had for us. God, take away every barrier that exists in the beautiful relationship of marriage, every vestige of pride and arrogance that keeps us as men, as husbands, from sacrificial love. And give us a burning desire and a heart to cherish and to nourish, to care for our wife. Because I pray in Jesus' name for His sake. There are three kinds of invitations. I know that some sermons are not necessarily uh, directed primarily to, the, to, to evangelism appeal. That's not what this series is about. But an opportunity for you if you've been thinking and praying about receiving Christ as your personal Savior. An opportunity for you to do that. A chance for you to join the church. Become a part of this family of God. Or maybe to take those steps God wants you to take publicly to fit into His divine design for you as a husband or a wife or a parent, as a Christian. While we stand to sing, we'll not sing long, just a stanza to invite you to come.